Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by three friends and former guests for a special episode where we're talking about all things cephalopod. We started the conversation with some of our favorite fun facts about octopi and the similarities in intelligence between human and cephalopods, despite not having common ancestors. Next, we discussed whether octopi can dream, the decentralized structure of their brains, and the possibility that they're some form of extraterrestrial species. From there, we discussed octopi's ability to change color, create texture, and shapeshift. We then talk about octopi's use of ink as a defense mechanism, the ability for dolphins to communicate telepathically, and the ability for humans to develop additional senses. We made sure to save some time for a discussion on bees, hippos, and whales as well. We end the discussion talking about octopuses' fields of vision, other senses available to octopi, and the fun in experiencing the mysteries of the cosmos. Outros for this and all episodes are available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy! Today, I'm lucky to be joined by some of my favorite people in the world, all former Entangled interview guests. We've got Jeff King, Pete Carabas, and Lexi Thodos. How's everyone doing tonight? Doing well, Jordan. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Yeah, excited to dive into it. No pun intended. (laughs) Very excited to get into this, guys. An awesome topic. And yeah, man, thanks for having us, Jordan. Awesome. Yeah, so the topic of tonight's discussion is the cephalopod squad. You know, we've, uh, (laughs) everyone on this call has come to recognize how crazy cool octopi and squid and cuttlefish are. And so we thought we needed to have a whole conversation to talk about them. So to kick things off, why don't we go around the horn and let me ask, what is one fact that you think is cool about octopi or other cephalopod? E, I, I don't know. And also, what would be your name if you were an octopus? <laughs> Lexi, why don't we start with you? <laughs> All righty. Well, um, my name is Lexi Thodos. However, if I were an octopus, I would prefer the name Squish. I think out of everything that fascinates me about octopi and, and cephalopods, probably that they have really just decentralized brains. They're a majority of their neurons and their brain are is located in their legs across pretty much a lower half of their body. So that's already pretty twisted from our typical view of how a thinking animal organism would work. But it just shows how dexterous and how much of a multidimensional creature they are. Damn. Yeah. Jeff, how about you? <laughs> So I, I went back and forth on this, but Jordan, you you and I had a podcast already and uh, we kind of touched on extraterrestrial life. And one of the cool facts, but I guess you can, it's, it's not necessarily a fact, it's more of a theory, but I love the fact that there's a theory that octopi or cephalopods came from space by being like ancient bacteria on a meteor. And we can get more into that later, but I think that's probably like something that I love to love to think about yeah that's wild and what would your name be oh shit so i like i was thinking like if i was an octopus i'm 
I'd probably be thinking about like a cartoon octopus and Brutus would probably be my name. You know me pretty well. Jordan, I'd just, you know, it's kind of like bumping around. I'd probably be one of the bigger ones. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I, that, that name kind of goes with, I hate that it's Ohio <laughs> State's mascot, but we'll leave it at that. I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think that'd be good. <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I suppose I'll go next. Uh, you got Pete Kravitz here. You know, my, I, I, you know, I guess if I was an octopus, I, I, I'm going to go with Ernie. I don't know why. I feel like it just Ernie's kind of a smart name of somebody that could be smart. I guess you have Burton Ernie, and in that instance, you know, Ernie's <laughs> not too smart. But my octopus Ernie, I feel like could be smart. But in terms of, I, I'll tell you the one fact that really has just created my whole fascination with octopi and cephalopods, but mainly octopi is, is when I went down the rabbit hole, is building on Jeff's comment. There's a lot of different types of species on earth. You have some that are very intelligent, some that are not. And you have animals like dolphins, for example, dogs, for example, who, you know, we want, everyone knows very well. They're they're friendly creatures, they're intelligent animals, they're mammals, and all of the above, you know, and, and people look at them very fondly. They're almost like these happy animals people associate with uh, very positively. Then on the other hand, right, you have octopi, which just exist in all different places in the ocean, right, but look absolutely nothing like us. They're not mammals. Not only that, they're not vertebrates. And, you know, when you look all the way back in time from where they came from, you know, they're older than dinosaurs. So to Jeff's point, one of these theories that octopi, you know, came as some type of bacteria from maybe outer space, you know, it certainly could make sense. And it's crazy to me to think, right, we look at a dog or a dolphin and you can trace the genetics back and see, you know, where, where humans have common ancestors. Octopi are just about as close to a real life alien as you could ever get because they're not even remotely close to us when you look back ancestrally speaking. But then on the same note, they exhibit a lot of these characteristics that humans do too. Like they're very curious, they're problem solvers, they're social, stuff like that. And then once you kind of absorb that fact, it's like, whoa, that's pretty intense. And then they just have this laundry list of all this other stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about, but I mean, from the camouflage to the intelligence to the uh, the venom, you know, the way they make their homes, the fact that they don't have shelves, that they're creative, that they have personalities. And it's like, you read a little bit about these animals and you're like, oh my God, this is crazy. And you keep reading and you're like, God, they're, they're, they feel like they're one of the most elite species on earth, but they're at the bottom of the ocean. And for me, one of the things that I love about octopi, or sorry, cephalopods, is that cephalo means head and pod means foot. So it's literally head foot. (laughs) It's like, that's how they look. Yeah. Well, you think about some of those cuttlefish. I mean, they literally look like a little foot, you know, with toes and they got like uh, two eyes popping up. So it's literally like (laughs) a a foot rolling rolling around on a coral reef with two eyes on it. But once again, then it can just change colors and squirt ink and all of the above. It's like, yeah. where did this thing come from? Hey, guys, I just thought of something. Have you guys seen the movie The Arrival? 
Yes. Yeah, with, um, Jessica Chastain. No, yes. with uh, Amy Adams. Amy yeah. Adams. In that movie, it just dawned on me. I love that movie. That is definitely, I've seen it so many times. It's one of the most thought provoking and one of the best movies out there. But it just dawned on me that their depiction of alien life form is essentially a mirror image or a variation on an octopus or a cephalopod. I'm pretty sure they're they're even called some like derivative of the word cephalopod in some way. I thought that was so cool, just realizing that. So maybe they are aliens. You never know. That is no, that's a that's a good point because like I one, one thing that I was thinking about earlier, just thinking about getting ready for this podcast is the depiction of alien life or like of mythical, crazy, powerful creatures. It's an octopus or a squid. Right. Mm-hmm. Like War yeah. of the Worlds was the same way. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. A little scarier than a little cuttlefish, little foot running around a coral yeah. reef. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I thought like big time about the the kraken, and that goes that goes back like so long in history. Is that like a Viking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Greek- and like our Greek mythology. There you go. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's so long to think about it, and it still comes up in movies today. Well, and you know what's like. One of the things I've been thinking about, just as you like re-examine all of history and a lot of Graham Hancock's ideas and stuff, like who's to say that these huge animals didn't actually exist? Like, think about the animals that lived in North America before the end of the last ice age. Like we had huge like bear sloths and like just all kinds of ginormous mammals. You know, so like maybe these krakens like were actually based on real animals. Yeah. No, Jordan, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when you look at some of the, in any of these ancient studies, right? You like even take like magic mushrooms or psychedelics, for example, and you look at how the mushroom is depicted in different cultures over time, thousands and thousands of years ago, et cetera. And then to Jeff's point, you see this type octopus or cephalopod type figure show up. Uh, whether it's Greek mythology, whether it's modern Hollywood, wh- whatever the case is, and it looks like a depiction of an extraterrestrial being. And then you, you bring it all back and say, okay, well, these things are amazingly sophisticated and we have no common ancestors. So yeah. one thing I just always think is evolution almost created intelligent beings, if we just want to call them that, two times over, like completely separately almost from almost clean slates, right? 600 million years back, you can't find any common ancestors with humans. Dogs and dolphins are easy. You can see that very easily. But the idea that 600 million years ago, you had two totally different, however this started, right? Whether it's a molecule or a eukaryote or a prokaryote, and it's, it's just went these created beings today that are act very similarly and actually live similarly but are not related at all which is just crazy it's crazy well and to me that even calls into question the conception of like what is evolution in the sense of we have this view of evolution as almost like a evolution of ability to dominate in, in a way but what if it's like more about just an evolution of consciousness and that like a natural property of the universe is that life finds a way to quote Jurassic Park. Yeah. And honestly, Jordan, I feel like 
the quote unquote evolution that the scientific community is familiar with and stands to by the book for since the beginning of time, that evolution in my eyes, it really just takes into account the tangible evolution that we were able to observe and make sense of rationally as to, you know, and what does an animal do or, or what does any living creature or species have to do in order to survive? How do they adapt to threats? So on and so forth. But it doesn't take into account the things that we can't see straightforward. And I think there is so much that's happening in the metaphysical realm that extends beyond just human experience, you know, and all life has this density to it, this magic to it, because at the end of the day, we cannot explain everything. And I think there are gaps here and there. And just because they're not really discussed by the scientific community as much because they don't have answers to it and they don't like being in that situation. But I definitely think that there's other forces at play and, you know, definitely like dolphins, you know, cephalopods, even honeybees. You have all of these different animals out there that are, and even plants that are just so just intelligent and it just draws into question, you know, like what else is going on here? You ever think maybe they're actually the most intelligent thing on earth? Yes. Because, oh, yeah. because, <laughs> because, because they've realized that where their habit, their habitat is and how they can stay in down below depths that we haven't even gone to, unless you're James Cameron and, you know, you get the opportunity to do that. Like they've stayed away from all the shit that we're getting into. Yeah, and they don't have ego, so they can right. use more of their their energy towards figuring out and learning new things and being just way doper. Well, Lexi, right. let me ask you about that because maybe they do have egos, right? Maybe that is also a natural part of evolution. That is a good point. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I would say that they definitely live most of their lives, I believe, in solitude. And I just think about myself, if that were the case, all that mental energy that I would be expending and the emotional energy, well, that might still be present. But, you know, there's like so much in the in the day to day human life that sucks away at mm-hmm. our at our spiritual presence, at our our transcendent essence, our, our thumbprint in the fabric of the universe that's always going to be there after we die, we're, we're still in existence. And I think that, you know, you can call that the present moment, you know, awareness, but we get so easily swept off from that point, you know, just due to the day-to-day responsibilities and tasks and demands and pressures in our lives. And I think there is some beauty to the fact that when you're talking about an animal or a different form of life that doesn't have that whole wall of stimuli, it's something something to think about. I don't know. Mm. I think about how, and then this comes up a lot, and this actually kind of falls parallel to the fact that so many of Octopi, so many of their, their really cool, almost magical abilities do lend to the fact that they had to develop these and evolve this way in order 
to maintain their existence, you know, mm-hmm. like they don't have bones, they're invertebrates. Yeah, they, so crazy. And so yeah. they had to create all of these different types of mechanisms to sustain their existence of their species. And I think that in and of itself is just like a cool, a cool thing to, to consider. You know, it's like when you have to do something and, and all of your energy is poured into it, anything is really possible. To not to get like into more movie talk, but I mean, we can. Going back to your point on Arrival, wasn't that the point of the aliens when they came back was they were trying to explain to us how to not destroy ourselves? Huh. Yes, I- and they said they communicated via that ink-like substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. they did. Yeah, Jeff, you're right. That's they were trying to tell us that, you know, we're here to warn you. And that's such a that falls in place with like so many of the, you know, extraterrestrial and mm-hmm. alien contact we've had on Earth. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same kind of the same message. So, you know, they're obviously on our team. <laughs> God, I'm, everyone's trying to warn us i don't know why we just won't listen we got aliens we got flying <laughs> saucers yeah. we got things under the sea we got <laughs> it's just i don't know i want to jeff's point i feel maybe we're like number ten thousand on the food chain and we're sitting around here thinking we're uh at the top i mean i don't see any occupied throwing nukes at each other for example but one thing too like that you were saying here's a crazy fact and you they're so far in a way when you talk about nervous systems, they're so far and away ahead of all other invertebrates that it's mind boggling, right? You have a Mm. lot of different types of mammals that are, you know, intelligent, sophisticated, however you want to describe them to give you this fact. So you have a a mollusk, right? Which is basically, you know, a cephalopod with a shell. The California sea slug is a simple one. It has like 18,000 neurons. So does a honeybee, et cetera. I'm sorry, a honeybee has 1 million. So sea slug, 18,000, mm. honeybee, 1 million. And then you have an octopus, which is 500 million, right? And so when we think about like invertebrae and their nervous systems, and you think that the second second place goes to the honeybee with mm-hmm. a million neurons, and then first place is that's crazy. the octopus with 500 million. Do you, do you know and what humans are? Humans have 86 billion. So we just oh, knock wow. everyone out of the park. But yeah. nonetheless, I, and I don't have this number in front of me, but the difference even on a percentage basis between the 86 billion that a human has and you know the next best mammal in terms of neurons, I guess, is not even close to that of place one and two on the invertebrate mm-hmm. kingdom. So it, that's also pecu- peculiar about octopi, right? Or cephalopods is like how much more they, how much more sophisticated their nervous systems are than any other species that's even remotely like them. Like they're far and away the king of their own domain. Like it, it's almost like there's a gap in or like a speeding up of evolution, which maybe leads credence to the idea of like, it, it was actually, they came from some other planet and that's why there's no like similar other ancestor. Yeah. No, there, I think there's a lot that points to that. That could be true. Right. I mean, 
And then I was reading just earlier today, you know, preparing a bit for this podcast too. And I was reading about, you know, octopuses or octopi and cephalopod consciousness. Coming back to your, your podcast here, Jordan. And one thing this guy had written, and he was some type of philosopher, like philosophers even have studied octopi. It's kind of a weird thing, right? But he's like, there's so much we don't know about consciousness that it's hard for us to sit here and say, you know, oh, we're smarter than octopi or we're nothing like them, right? Because we don't know what we might have that's similar with them. In other words, like if we saw an alien, for example, or if we, you go to the Arrival movie, for example, you know, they're standing right by the aliens. You can tell both humans and the aliens are smart, but they're trying to figure out how to communicate and mm-hmm. it's kind of a barrier. And I think that, you know, you, you can get that with octopi or cephalopods. And you see that, you know, where you see that is, I'm sure you guys have seen My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. Yeah. That was another crazy doc where you see this octopus that literally befriends this guy over time, you know, recognize, I mean, octopi can recognize human faces, right? That's crazy too. And so to recognize a human face, to know that person's not a threat and so much more than that, they have their own personalities, right? They can feel it. Yeah, exactly. So exactly, Jeff. So when you think about consciousness and octopi and humans, in all the stuff I just said, it's, it's just a, raises a lot of interesting questions. Here's the thing too. Like when you think, how could we possibly, the giant squid was just, just, just discovered. I mean, the first image was in what, like 2002 or 2004. I didn't so know gonna, that. Yeah. And I think the first like actual, like filming of it was like early 2006 or something like that. So how could we possibly <laughs> understand them enough to truly think if we are more, like, yeah. we're, we're more intelligent or not. Well, I, I was reading about that, something similar to Jeff, which is that they're just so difficult to study. Not only are, you know, they're all different sizes, they're camouflaged, they sit at the bottom of the ocean, they're all different shapes and sizes. It's just, it's not like studying a, you know, a golden retriever or any type of dog or even a dolphin or right at the surface. And we have lots in captivity. You know, it's, it's hard. It's been very hard, I think, for scientists and time consuming for scientists to actually study one of the most sophisticated sea creatures out there, which is really unlike anything at least I can think of. The one thing I was going to mention that honestly comes in ties with my fun fact at the beginning, but another fact that I love about octopi is the fact that we can't tell this for certain, speaking to what you're saying, Pete, but as far as from our observations, we can have enough evidence to believe that octopi have the capacity to dream because Mm -hmm. when octopi are sleeping, it's and and there is there's a ton of research on this online just of uh, really just more observational because again it's not like we can take brain scans and really see what's going on but when they are asleep they will change colors like they're as if they're alive so as if they're mimicking a surrounding environment but they're sleeping so you know that would draw you to believe that they have all of this 
potential. They have all these neurons across their whole body. They have, they're, they're these like gigantic supercomputer minds, except their whole body is. And in their sleep, they are changing colors and, and their changing of colors is, is just basically some, a pigment reaction that involves different tissues or muscles contracting and expanding but the fact they do that when they're sleeping is insane to me that means like if that is true that like I don't want to say that that 100% means they're dreaming because I can't but I would definitely put money on the fact that I would not put it past them like that is so so cool to me they're existing in a different dimension I mean that's what dreaming is you know, your physical mm-hmm. body is here, but your awareness, your consciousness is somewhere else. And the fact that, that Octopi, we Did have dolphins dream. I believe I, I don't know here. I'm going to Google that right now. I'm oh, like the guy see. in Joe Rogan's podcast. that just like, sits on the <laughs> Jamie, Google that. Yeah. Jamie, yeah. <laughs> Jamie, look that up. <laughs> That guy's got a great church history. Don't, um, oh my God, I can't even imagine. I mean, you think yeah. about it, like dogs dream. At least we think they do. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Everything. My dogs like squeal in their dreams sometimes. It makes me right. sad. I mean, who's to say that most animals don't dream? Like, uh, it feels like these different states of consciousness, like sleep is obviously necessary for what I think like almost all animal species. And so like, it, it seems like it's very clearly physiologically like something that, matters to living beings and so who's to say that dreaming isn't also part of that and you know maybe ants dreaming we just don't know what that looks like yeah no i know know what you mean ants and their little tiny dreams um (laughs) all right so yeah sorry i was just gonna clear the air it is not clear whether dolphins undergo dream sleep however Uh they sleep an average of 34% 34% of the day, which is insane. Half their brain sleeps at a time. The other half is awake. It's crazy. Sorry, oh. Pete, continue. No, well, that's, that seems about in line with humans. What, 34% of the day? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, we sleep eight hours or so, so it's not too far off. But, yeah, I, you know, the other thing I, I just said, you know, steer us down a, another path here, too, is just how smart octopi are and cephalopods are their camouflage abilities all this cool stuff you learn you know that's all one thing and then i i often joke that you just the more you read about them it's like what can't they do at one point you know what i mean and by that it's like physically you know they have their three hearts they have their one central brain and then they have a brain in each tentacle i believe or some variation of that right an octopus at the end of the day my conception is that it's like the whole thing's basically like a brain, you know, an octopus mm-hmm. tentacle and it grabs yes. you. It tasting, smelling, feeling, it can sense gravity and it's thinking all with one arm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you hear about like the infamous octopus story where like an octopus gets, its, oh yeah, and then you cut its arm off and it regenerates, right? Or the arm like crawls away. I mean, it's it's actually just, I, I was laughing about it the other day. Like, if there were aliens on Earth, how are they not the top candidate? Uh, <laughs> oh, what in like that? every They're... single way possible. I mean, yeah. it's like it's almost comical how crazy and magnificent they are. And to Jeff's point, it's like they're out of a, a book. They're out of like a 
fiction book. You know, they have venom, they have a, a beak. Some of them are poisonous, some of them aren't. And then they have those, the way their little cells work, they're called chromos, chromophores or something like that. The, you know, like when an octopus camouflages and chameleons have the same ability and use the same like biology. But if you think about it like a balloon, like think about like a red water balloon. And I think if you had a bunch of microscopic water balloons of all different types of colors, and I'm doing probably a 70% job explaining this, but all different types of colors, right? And so, you know, if you wanted to show more red on your skin, you know, your, your red little water balloon cell expands. So the surface area grows. So you see, you know, an octopus is like attached on a piece of coral and it's not only are its cells expanding and contracting as they're sensing light and matching to a color behind them, but they're also doing that with texture too, right? So, you know, the sun comes in, they see how the sun's reflecting off something next to them and their cells are adjusting for that, turning that color. That's crazy. And they have all these different pigments. Pete, do you know... Can they actually like change the consistency or texture of it? Or can they only like make it look, look like that? You know what I mean? My understanding is it's like a combination of both. So I, I, I know they can do, for example, an octopus can take, you know, you look at an octopus's arm, it's this squiggly looking limp thing, right? But they can make it look like a super, super sharp knife, like a samurai sword, for mm. example, right? So they have this extreme muscular ability to change their shape. And so when you combine that extreme muscular ability, especially on a microscopic level, with this ability to change color, those two things combined, it's like when you look at an octopus and say, oh my God, how does half of its body look like a piece of coral and the other half of its body look like seaweed that's just blowing in the current or whatever? And once again, then you zoom back and say, okay, it's, it's like this big brain and it's just absorbing this information and like making sense of it all like simultaneously. Quicker um, than we can. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. Like, like the think about the video, think about the ability that they have to change shape, like a big four meter octopus or meter long octopus even can look at a hole the size of a cue ball and get through it. Oh, yeah. Because it can oh, change. Yeah. You know what I mean? Physically, it can change like that. Yeah. That's, if, that's not adapting yeah, that's to, to, if that's not adapting to survive the longest on a planet, like being able to do stuff like that and, you know, go camouflage and, and all that, ultimately, yeah. ultimately, every species' goal is to survive. If they haven't done it better than anything, what has? What? Maybe yeah. a tardigrade, I guess. Yeah. Exactly, Jeff. And the the octop the cephalopod basically said to the mollusk, "Well, I guess they were all mollusks, mollusks one day, which is just a cephalopod with a shell." And then mm-hmm. one day, the cephalopod was just like, "Fuck it, I don't need the shell." <laughs> and they they just went on, and now they have these. You know, they defended themselves in other ways. And you think about it, right? It's like in some sense would be the easiest thing to kill if you take away all of its crazy abilities like camouflage and ink and venom. But like then the point I'm making is if you contrast that with a mollusk, which basically just says, you know what, I'm a clam. I'm just going to sit in a shell and reproduce however clams reproduce. 
and there's enough of us around here and we're covered in a hard shell and we have a soft body and, you know, whatever. The octopus is just a, a, a snail, essentially, right? With, with no shell. It's just like the squishy, I guess, Lexi, your name's Squish. So it's probably a good name. Squish. Well, yeah. And it was, they, they were just forced to adapt so rapidly. I mean, I don't know what the evolution, the part of time where they ditch the shell. And I mean, I'm just thinking the second they ditch the shell, they have to pick up pace and figure it out fast or else they're going to be wiped clean. You know what I mean? Off the face of the earth. I mean, predators left and right are going to try to eat this squishy lump of meat floating around in the ocean. So exactly. And and Lexi, and then they're, (laughs) I mean, think about this too. And then they're they're also, I mean, they taste good. I love eating octopus. Although the more I read about them, I like almost don't want to, but I'm. Yeah. It's like a love hate relationship. Um, They are good. Yeah. They're so tasty. Uh, They're good. And, Mm -hmm. And you even see like, okay, you take it. Okay. I got rid of the shell, right? I'm a mollusk. Now I got rid of my shell. You'd think they they operate kind of defensively. But then on the other hand, you hear about octopi that will jump out and they grab a bird right on the the side of the seashore and bring it underwater and eat a bird. Like, it's just, that's what I mean. It it never ends with these things. They're just, they they never cease to amaze. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like they can kind of do everything and they don't even have a skeleton. And the one thing that fascinates me about their defense mechanisms while we're still on the subject is that, so yeah, everyone knows that they will ink their predators and they'll create this smoke shield with, with their ink. But what I found so fascinating is that they actually have the ability to, using their ink, create, I believe the word is is like pseudomorph, which basically is they can create their exact shape. It's like a a false body of them, but with their ink and their ink has all of these properties that will not only like irritate the eyes of a predator, but Pete and I were just watching this one, something on underwater octopi were involved. And it was talking about how the eel, this one, eel is like a huge threat to octopi in in some region eels basically eels their senses all kind of suck except they have insanely good sense of smell Mm. so they basically see with their nose and obviously i mean this is an obviously statement for octopi because they're so insane this is this would obviously be the case their ink contains these insane I guess you'd call them like pheromones Mm. that will deliberately just completely throw eels off. And so you have this huge predator that just is one of the top predators for octopi. And they're able to create, aside from having the ink and being able to throw them off with that, they also can completely just target that specific predator and figure out a way to like amp up their defense mechanism so their defense mechanisms aren't just, it's not like, like a zebra where they run really fast and they exist in large numbers. So that's really what they have going for them. Mm. You know what I mean? And they have stripes. So it's harder to see. Zebras are actually probably one of the coolest, but besides the point, 
Octopi have such precise and well orchestrated forms of defense that are, it's almost like an enigma. It's crazy. Honestly. Way more ways of survival than humans. Oh yeah. It's it, exactly. Like when you, it's when you come down, yeah. When you come down to like just the, the actual being the creature of it, technology out of it, they have way more ways to survive than humans mm-hmm. do. And that, yeah. so think about, so think about their defense system of being able to survive and adapt in places where we can't find them. They've been, yeah. you know, th- they've been able to understand to stay away from their biggest predator, which at the end of the day would be us. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Which that makes me think of too, Jeff, is how much do they know about us? Like maybe they know a lot more than we think. Yeah. All right. Jordan, that's like the, uh, what I kind of was trying to touch on with the consciousness part of what this guy was writing about that I was reading earlier today, which is what if they are looking at us in certain ways and saying, you know, these are pretty simple creatures, you know, and they don't quite know how to communicate with us. You yeah. know what I mean? Similar. They're very to barbaric. How, they just kill us and eat us. They're barbaric, whatever they think, who knows? Yeah, exactly. Similar, you know, the good analogy, as long as we're using that arrival, you know, they're, we look at them, right. An alien or an octopus and say, Oh, you know, they're almost as smart of us. So they're really smart. We'll give them some credit. And the point is, is because we don't understand consciousness, even really a fraction of it is what I'm coming to believe is maybe they're way ahead of us in ways that we don't understand Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. Totally. Um, Mm -hmm. And you could argue that with other extraterrestrial beings, you could argue that with dolphins, you could argue that with a number of other examples, but yeah, it's, that's, what's remarkable to me is, is we always assume we're at the top of the food chain and it's just not, I don't think it's the case. Yeah. Well, and Pete, with dolphins, we do have, I I would say definitely more than octopi, we do have at least like a beginning of, we're starting to actually see that exchange of acknowledgement and awareness. Like there are so many encounters and, and phenomenon that people have described with dolphins, you know, going in to, to protect them when they're in harm's way. Mm. One, someone's in in the water and there's a shark coming or, or if they're in harm's way and dolphins have on record been, it's been recorded that dolphins have come in and, and helped people before. Right. And also there are people that, that claim that they have been able to telepathically communicate with dolphins. Mm. And there was this, this one video I was watching, there was this one like trainer and she was saying how she would stand out of the water and she's been working with these same dolphins. I believe it was like one or two that she was really close with. They, they were very familiar with each other and she would stand outside the water along the edge. And in her mind, she would think jump, but she wouldn't say it. She would just think jump. And the dolphin would jump on command and it would be, and then obviously that's a simplified version, but she would, it it would make it really complex. And the fact that that is, is even possible is so insane. It is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cool. 
I, I think you could use a lot of these different types of, I'll just call them intelligent animal species to try to help us understand consciousness. I think it all goes back to the same place. And uh, Lex, even that doc we were watching on Gaia the other day where you have this blind guy who you could find this guy on Google very easily. He is, has like an exceptional ability. He literally, this guy can use echolocation like 100%. Mm-hmm. He can draw pictures of what's around him that has never been able to see since birth. He can draw accurate maps of what's around him by clicks. Wow. He makes these clicks with his mouth, like kind of like a Mm -hmm. dolphin, honestly. So the reason I bring that up is human, right? This guy is blind. He's been forced to try to figure out other ways to navigate the world for whatever reasons he of all different blind people out there has figured out how to do this very well. So what to say that we're, in other words, we're, we're human and we're very underdeveloped in terms of echolocation abilities, right? So what if, you know, an octopus or a dolphin looks at us, you know, a dolphin could look at us, right? And say, these are, these beings are almost as smart as us, for example, you, you kind of see what I'm saying. It's like, there's certain yeah. things that just do so much better and it goes both ways. And octopus mm-hmm. can learn and problem solve. And we're better at that. We think we are than they are, but what's really the measure, I guess, is the question. Can they communicate with each other? Do we know? I, I'm not sure. I would I assume think. some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like they don't usually, what's the number like based on uh, how many when a female octopus will lay her eggs, there's like hundreds of thousands. And that number is typically dwindled down to yeah, like such little. a small, mm-hmm. yeah, like a, a frack, a trivial amount. And they live pretty much, oh, well, not always in solitude, but I don't know. I pro- I feel like I think they mostly they do. I think they do. Think so. well, I was watching this one uh, documentary on, oh, what's it called? That island right... It's like right north of Sicily in the Mediterranean. It has the volcano that's like constantly active. Anyways, there was deep sea divers and they went down there and there's some reefs down there. And this uh, volcano, it's an island. So it erupts and then all of these piping hot giant boulders and, and lava and all of this material and matter is just rushing down into the water below because again it's literally just sitting it's an island on the water and right down there there's a lot of like aquatic life and there were divers and they saw that there were two octopi that were living there and they were studying them and observing them and they observed that the octopi sensed when the volcano was about to erupt Mm. and would leave probably like preceding the eruption by not like seconds before where they felt the rumbling noticeably, but, but like 10, 20 minutes before, before the divers even knew that there was a pending eruption. And they were like, this is insane. The fact that these only all the other fish, all the other life forms that are right down there. And the reason being is because these rocks will come plowing in there and it will often kill a lot of these, the sea life down there. But the octopi, every time they would swim away like 20 minutes before, 
And I remember, you know, on the documentary, they were saying like, you know, they, they don't know how, but they think they're picking up on some form of electromagnetic frequency that, that permeates in some capacity Mm. that they can pick up on and immediately take action. So I feel like they had to have been able to communicate, you know what I mean? Be like, yo, I think this thing's about to erupt. Let's get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) To answer your question. (laughs) Yeah. That's speculation. So something else I was thinking about when Lexi was talking about how, how they have decentralized brains and nervous systems. And one of the metaphysical concepts I've found to be super interesting is the idea of non-locality of consciousness and that consciousness as an entirety is non-localized. And even for humans who think that it's all in our brain and just our own brain, that it's not actually the case. And you see animals like octopi that support the idea that, you know, they can do it, then who's to say we're not capable of tapping into those capabilities as well. For sure. Yeah. And we're just not as advanced yet. Yeah. Which and we is talked the scary about part of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, like what the 500 million neurons versus the 86 billion and whatever they say about how, like, we only, you know, we, we only use like 10% of the capacity of our brains. Like, what is it that we're not tapping into? Yeah. And I mean, I think that this might be an extension of the conversation, but I also think that there's, I think there's a difference between, you know, the number and the scale of neurons. There's definitely correlation, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if that always directly implies causation in terms of more neurons, meaning that you're more woke, that you have this, this larger propensity towards being all knowing or, or being more conscious. I think that having more neurons obviously gives you a larger, you know, tool set to achieve that. But I I don't know if that's always directly correlated. Like Pete, I know you brought up that thing about bees and they don't have, that's one of the craziest mysteries about bees is that they really don't have that many neurons, but they have so much intelligence and they actually have Bees happen to have, even though they don't have as many neurons, they have the most densely packed gray matter in their brains of any animal in the entire world. And so this is something that scientists are like, what? And bees also are extremely interconnected with electro- electromagnetic and, uh, and quantum realms. They have wow. this, this insane vibrational coherence with the surrounding frequencies they can sense when their storms are coming they do this little dance with their bodies and that dance alone will signify to the other bees and this is all happening in the dark you know beehive it will sense to the other bees specifically the they'll they'll do that usually to to imply a location that they're referring to if they went out and scoped out a new place maybe for to find new, more food or nutrients, or maybe a new place to create a new hive, they'll do this little dance. And that dance alone will specify the distance and the direction and basically all this other information around specifically a coordinate that could be up to like eight miles away though with precision, just by doing this little vibrational dance, it will signal that to the rest of its, its, uh, it's bees. It, and it's so that that would be like honey crazy. this way or something. I mean, uh, pollen this way. What do you mean? 
is like like is that the kind of thing they would be signaling to one another yeah i mean they'll they'll signal so like they'll go out into the world and say they find you know a really dense field of wildflowers mm-hmm. one of them does and they're like wow this is insane i gotta go tell all the homies so they'll go back to the beehive and they'll go and they communicate with vibration mm-hmm. and so that's why you see you know when you open up a a beehive if you look in it you know you have all these hexagons and it's so cool because they're so precise and there isn't like one organizational task maker that's directing you know okay this needs to be like they all just inherently and instinctually no, create perfectly exactly they know how to just create these perfect structures and i was actually reading Something about a hexagon is similar to like if you were to collapse like the fourth dimension and or if you were to, okay, if you were to draw a box on a piece of paper, that's collapsing the third dimension into the second dimension, right? So if if you go outwards in dimensions, there's some inner, there's some relationship between the hexagon shape and like a sixth dimensional existence of some form. I don't know. I, I feel mm. like I'm not going to continue on that path, but definitely. In no, I know. I, I get what you're saying. I want to learn so, more about it. It makes sense. Think about that. Like when Lexi brought up like dimensions and everything. So think about that. Like an octopus or a lot of these creatures, like the, going back to the bee, just woke up and like, you know, like the, they get together and they know how to build that. Mm-hmm. I, as a human, can't just wake up and build a house i have to learn from something else to do it or like an octopus just all of a sudden realized by itself we don't see it get taught how to go camouflage yeah that's another thing with octopi is that they're one of the few animals that have to learn like their their brains or their you know intelligence is probably so sharp because it literally has to learn it all from scratch from the beginning like it doesn't have a mother to teach you know, the young, okay, this is how you hunt. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. Like, like a, yeah. a lion would, but yeah. That's, so think yeah, about like crazy. May, may, maybe it's getting some, maybe it's getting something from something that we don't understand because our consciousness and our ability to perceive dimensions and stuff isn't there yet. Yeah. Cause you know, we need help in the mm-hmm. physical, but we need help in the physical, but they go elsewhere and get that information in a different sure. way than we do. Yeah. And also think about maybe their eyes are just, you know, what if like they have different visible light spectrums that they can see, like, and they can see gamma rays or infrared rays or something. And they just, they can see things that are there that we think aren't there because we, we can't see them. For sure. Jordan. I definitely, I mean, they can, they, they can without their eyes basically i mean how do you think they camouflaged every single inch of their being they don't use their eyes to look around in every crevice that they're yeah that surrounds them to determine okay this this like needs to turn orange an orangey hue like they have these receptors throughout their body they're whether it comes down to some like biochemical reaction which it does but it's like it, it's there's definitely this other element of yeah this like being receptive to this other like stream of energy and this energetic reaction that allows them to operate like that. 
Yep. So I want to go back to the idea that Jeff was talking about early on in where, you know, that, that, that octopi could have been from like an asteroid or something. And then I've heard another theory kind of along those lines, but even crazier called like uh, directed panspermia, which is this idea that DNA was, is so complicated and it's almost like a, a computer code that it looks to have been created by some other intelligent civilization or like that, that's just a possibility that it was like, so anyway, what I was, what I'm getting at with that is like, is it possible that DNA is, is all related amongst all the different species on earth. And maybe it's just kind of like whichever one can survive to evolve throughout all the crazy things that happen on earth will end up being the one that runs the earth, right? Like maybe it could have been the rep, the dinosaurs back in the day if, if they hadn't gotten wiped out. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, there's like, there's several different types of DNA almost at the start, if you will. And then they're almost each like a dice roll, I guess I'd say. And then certain things happen on Earth or other planets, certain, um, you know, changes in climate, whatever the case is, you know, certain environments. And obviously, you know, some DNA changes to be superior and continues to do that and evolves and evolves, et cetera. I think I get what you're saying, Jordan, but that would make sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I learned right. that hippos actually descended from whales. That's unrelated in any way. That's crazy. <laughs> That's their closest relative ancestor. Isn't that insane? That's why they have like two inch thick flubber that is surrounding insane. them. Yeah. Where, Isn't that crazy? where do hippos live? Africa. Hippos? Uh, yeah. They uh there's like the river streams in Africa that they well, they actually just chill in the river for protection for the most part, because they eat, they usually at night, they'll go on land and they'll eat all their food. And then they go back to the river for protection, mainly because of like, like a pack of lions is really probably their biggest threat. A single lion probably couldn't kill a hippo. Um, Hippos are actually one of the most dangerous animals in Africa. So Mm -hmm. yeah, they, what's, what's the sad, they, they kill more humans than like anything. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I actually, yeah, you're right. There is some, there's some statistics that, well, because so they can like run really fast. They are insanely, hippos, like their legs are, they can go underwater for up to like five minutes, five, six minutes. But since they are holding their breath and they have all this oxygen filling the sacs of their lungs, that makes them buoyant. So to counteract the buoyancy, Hippo's legs are like a hundred percent solid bone. Like they're just this, these heavy, dense bones that are like short and that just basically anchor them to the bottom of the riverbed. And so that's why when you see hippos, you'll occasionally see them like pop their eyes up and then they'll just go right back down. But yeah, I mean like they're mammals, they still need to breathe, but they've adapted in, in crazy ways themselves. This might be a really stupid question, but are whales mammals? Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, like sharks whales, or, yeah. or not. How is that defined, mammal? Warm-blooded it animal? It gives birth. Yeah, warm-blooded and like it gives, 
it doesn't like lay eggs. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. It has like the traditional like vaginal birth. Mammals are a group of vertebrates constituting the class mammalia, characterized by the presence of mammary glands, which in females produce milk, feeding their young, et cetera, et cetera. Often have fur or hair. So even like some of these big sea mammals even have some little hairs and stuff, but it's not just that, it's other things. But they're vertebrates. Once and even just to go back to octopi and cephalopods, that's the crazy thing too. I, I just I can never get out of my head is most of the real intelligent, sophisticated animals we know are vertebrates. And then you have mm-hmm. uh, vertebrates, which, you know, are all different. There's all different types, but generally speaking, they're, they're not as close as uh, intelligent and sophisticated as mammals that we're familiar with. Right. So, I mean, they have no skeleton, right? I mean, they have no backbone and octopus. All they have is, that, I believe, some little bone in their head that like protects some essential organ, something like that. What's crazy to me too is that all their organs can change shape too, right? Like what? Yeah, yeah. They're they're, they're, they're literally shapeshifters. It's insane to watch. Yeah, yeah, right. That's and they use that, and they use that to solve problems. Hmm. Right. I mean, you have some of these octopi that even or cephalopods that, you know, they actually just on second thought decided they wanted a shell. Right. And so they go and grab something and it could mm-hmm. be a piece of sea garbage. It could be a dead clam shell, whatever. And they'll walk around with it on their back. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and going back to like how their trademark of the octopus is just their insane ability to learn and solve problems you know, they're plopped on, on earth. They don't have any guidance whatsoever, right? Nothing's teaching them. And they just start figuring out how to survive. And then what that results in is you have all these, all the, you know, you have a lot of different types of octopi and cephalopods and, you know, they have different, they've learned to live in the world in even similar environments in different ways, right? One wants to carry a shell on its back for protection. One uses camouflage more. One squirts ink way more frequently than another one, for example. Mm -hmm. Like they're all very different. It's crazy. Like you can even look at so many different animals, right? And even the dolphin, and I'm not sure I'm right about this, but you know, they all seem to act pretty similar. And yes, they probably have some personalities and stuff, And but even dogs, right? They all kind of act pretty similar octopi by themselves are so different individually that's why people often say too they just have they each have their own personalities i think it's because they have their own individual experiences that are like totally unique to any other living octopus you know because they have to do it all on their own they have no one else to teach them so the way that they learn and adapt to their surroundings and their environment and their threats and their rewards, you know, it's all, they have these just adaptive dynamic cells that, that really can, that sit at the core of manifestation. Truly. They just create what they become, what they need to be. So that, that would be really interesting to be able to study. If you could take like the same species of octopus, of octopi and, and study the differences of their each individual, like adaptations to survive they have. Cause like, what if, yeah one of them 
doesn't squirt ink like the other one does or doesn't quite get more camouflage like the other one does. Yeah, and Jeff, to your point, some of the studies that scientists have done, that's one of the remarkable findings is that they um, you can put different octopi in similar or the same experiments and they solve them differently, which is kind of crazy to think about. It's not like they all do the same thing. Or you always hear you'll have octopi in captivity and one of them will escape its tank in the same fashion over and over and over and others will do it their own way. So there's another interesting thing I read, and I, I think I'm getting this right, where they they do something like to, to they're trying to touch the octopus brain, right? And so, you know, they have nine brains or whatever that means. And to me, it's all one big brain, but, you know, they, they take like one tentacle and they put it like out of the water and the octopi has to use that tentacle plus using its eyes to like unlock some hinge and then it can get out. And so like it can figure out complex stuff like that where it's losing a lot of its ability in its in its arm or one of its brains, if you want to think about it that way, when it's out of the water. And then it makes up for it by using its eye and the other parts of its brain to solve a problem, which is bizarre. What do they eat? A oh, bunch of different stuff. Kinds of stuff. Um, Crabs, different fish. Crab. Oh, those little spiky. What are those called? Urchins, sea urchins. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, they do. They that's do the, they that's open them up or do they eat they them with do, this? Jordan. They do. They huh. do, but before they open them up, they figure out. Wait a minute! I have a lot better chance of getting into this thing if I learn how to flip it on its back and then separate it at this joint or or whatever this part of its body. And so you have, that's another thing, right? Like similar to humans, they have these, these, this wide spectrum of a diet, right? They, they eat different things. They figure out what's available and they figure out how to eat it, get past its defenses in many cases in the animal kingdom. So it's like, yeah, what do they eat? They eat, it's not like they're a whale, you know, or a dolphin where they're, Kind of all eating the same thing. They, I believe they all just eat whatever's out there. Kind of like humans. And that would make sense if they're just really intelligent and have evolved to adapt, that they would have a wider palate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, I think the idea is like you could plop one down in, you know, a number of different ecosystems and they would figure out what to eat, how to eat it and how to survive subsequently. Yeah. How long can they even survive outside of water? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But I mean, that is so fucking crazy too. These guys just get out of the ocean. Like well, what? Jordan, and even like, I don't know how right I am about this either, but even I suppose one question is right. Like you hear the infamous tale of the, ob- the octopi escaping the tank in the laboratory like a finding Nemo situation. And even for an octopi to be able to like take some type of calculated risk, knowing, you know, like for example, a fish is never going to jump out of a tank and think, all right, I'm going to flap my way across the floor 
and then try to find my way back into the ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just going to swim in circles. Also think Um, about the, think about it like that, that story also to have like the ability to think I have to wait until my human keeper leaves the room. Exactly. Jeff, that's the crazy stuff. That type of stuff. (laughs) I got to wait until dark till the, once the lights go off, I can start messing around like some type of Houdini, like toy story. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen that meme where there's the octopus that, uh, sometimes looks pissed off and that it, it punches fish oh we shared it in the octo nation group <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they yeah. always look so pissed off <laughs> with their little squinty eyes <laughs> and sometimes they'll just punch fish <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's just hilarious sock. i don't like i don't like uh, the way that fish is swimming at me i'm just gonna sock him right in the gut <laughs> <laughs> well and they have like what like 180 degree vision or no more oh, than yeah, like, like 360. No, I like love, they can. Oh yeah. Yeah. Their eyes move in a circle. But it's, and, but it's interesting. Most of them are colorblind. Well, really? they're, color, they're colorblind, but one of my favorite octopi fun facts is they don't have a blind spot is what they say. So yeah, the way like their eyes are deal. positioned yeah. on their head, right. Are is, is such that, there's no it's 360 degrees around them they can see and their eyes are actually very similar to human eyes as opposed to something like a supposed to something like a dolphin right that's essentially blind like octopi once again we're not related 600 million years no ancestors in common and we develop a similar eye right it's like that's bizarre mm. So think about it too. If they're like, you know, most of them are some type of colorblind, but then they can also change their own body's colors and know which colors they're changing to. Yeah. Holy shit. I never even thought about that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that's just because we see through the perspective, no pun intended, but we experience life through the perspective of seeing with our eyes to represent reality, you know, the, the world around us, but octopi clearly defy the notion of that being the only case because they don't need their eyes or only their eyes to be able to, I mean, and same with, with other, any other animal, you can use anything, you know, sound, you can use obviously texture, different vibrations. I think that it's, it's insane. Yeah. Like octopi obviously have eyes, but going back to what we were saying, how they can see light without using their eyes and whether that's via touch, I I don't know too far down that, but I definitely, I do know that they have like a heightened sensory perceptive, like ability, which is insane. And what about, Lexi, I think we've even talked about the idea that there's other senses that are that like they used to know how to access in ancient Egypt. And like, what if there are other senses besides the five that we think about that we just haven't even thought to like that? We just don't even understand what that experience feels like, but that other animals have that right. Like echolocation, I think, is a good example. Echolocation, Jordan, in the. uh in that Gaia doc about the blind guy who learns how to use it very effectively, 
from an early age. That's exactly, exactly what he calls it. What he says is that we have more than six senses. We just aren't familiar with them. Mm. That's what he says. Well, and Pete, when you brought that up at first, when earlier when I was talking and then I went on a tangent, that is what I was trying to say. And the reason being is that it's the concept and and this really just resonates for me, just this concept. And it's the concept that when we, we are like mechanisms, nothing about us is fixed. You know, we are, are constantly evolving and adapting, whether spiritually, physically, um, emotionally. And when we are put into an environment, for instance, like this man who was blind, he didn't, he couldn't see. So he's all of a sudden, you know, we see from the outer world as we see, view that as a deficit, right? You cannot see. So now you have one lesser tool in your toolbox, but the potential and the, in the complexity of life is so cool to me. And this is kind of like the whole thesis of what I'm saying. And it's, it's that when our, I don't want to say brain, but when our energy source, let's say our life, our life force, you know, whatever you want to call it, but when it's constrained in one, in one capacity, that energy, it can't be created or destroyed. It just changes form. And this, this concept can be applied towards, you know, everything in life. But for instance, in the case of someone who's blind now, yeah, you just took away one sense of theirs, but now they have all of their other senses are just so much more profoundly heightened that they're starting to, you know, triangulate and crossbreed these senses into these new senses. And now they're able to become so much more intimately entangled with their surroundings in ways that are so much further beyond what we are experiencing as someone who can see and who has all of these, you know, the typical, what, five senses. But the Egyptians are claimed to have been able to access all 360, I believe, of total senses. And this can explain a lot of these old, these ancient structures that we don't really know why or, you know, how, but, or why they were built. And a lot of people say, oh, well, they were built to, for the the royal that have passed. And this is like, you know, this is where they rest. And it was, but there's so much evidence that suggests that so many of these structures were built as all these different devices. Like for instance, like like a sonar device, God, that's not the right word, but where they have created these chambers. And this is present in a lot of ancient structures that are built around the world, you know, in the Mayan ruins, there's, you know, in, in Southern Europe and where there's evidence that the structures are built in a way that can amplify sound waves. And like, I was just watching this one documentary and it was talking about I can't remember where this, where it was, but it basically was created where it's like this underground dome and they measured like the dimensions and naturally all these ancient structures are like perfectly built with like perfect dimensions and everything. It's mind blowing, but you, you see, and this is super consistent that there's a pattern of them using these as tools to achieve these means that are just beyond the senses that we have right now. Like there's even beliefs that they, the, how they built the pyramids and these giant structures wasn't 
through all these guys holding, you know, ropes and trying to lug these stones, but rather using sound and being able mm-hmm. to using a, some sense of like a sonic projection and have the sound basically move stuff. And there's other ruins where they use sound to, to connect with the dead and to create this meditative state that they have researched and compared that's the same as when someone's in deep meditation or, you know, the brainwaves of a child, that's the same state that when they did these tests in these ruins and it generated this sound that basically puts you in like an alpha brainwave state, which it allowed, you know, they did ceremonies where people could connect with the dead. I mean, we're just scratching the tip of the the Mm -hmm. iceberg here. And it's insane just to think about this kind of goes back just full circling myself here just goes back to the fact that in this day and age, you know, we have new demands, new responsibilities, new ways, new competition, new ways that we need to focus on to survive. But, you know, what we gave up for that is, you know, we're diluting the energy potential that we have to really tune into some of these fields that exist that, that humans were really able to tap into and work really con- conducively with back then, you know, it's like they didn't have the distractions of checking your email or, you know, Russia's bombing Ukraine or this, that, and the other. It's, it's like they were whatever was right in front of them. And they just really connected with the here and now. And it really just shows the potential of, of what that allowed them to do. Being able to focus on what really matters to survive. Exactly. And today we all not just survive that, but but to thrive, thrive. right? You thrive, yeah. yeah, for sure, yeah. And I think the other thing, and I, I, that was really well said, Lexi. And I think the other thing about those other capabilities is if you're in a civilization, like the importance of culture is so important for all this story too. Because if you're in a civilization where you everyone accepts that you have other access to senses then, you know, you're in your, in your default mode of consciousness or whatever you want to call it, then it becomes much more easy to believe that you too can tap into that potentiality. And I think that's why in our modern culture, when we just so many people are so locked into the views of mainstream conventional science that they don't believe in that, you know, some of these other energies and capabilities that these ancient civilizations were able to tap into are even possible. But then you look at like other civilizations, like the Vedic culture in India and, and these ideas of like the yoga sutras of Patanjali, where like whole civilizations like thought that you had that like knew that you could do things like levitate. But, but when you're not living in a society that believes in that, it, it becomes much harder to believe in it yourself. For sure. And I mean, I'll just say that they were doing stuff that they didn't need science to tell them that what was happening right in front of their eyes was working or was the reality, you know, it's like the modern science that, that our society adheres to today was created and established in so, so much time after so much of these ancient civilizations and the ancient intelligence that we're talking of, you know, it's like all of this stuff with modern science that we've established. It's like that came into play thousands and thousands of years later. So that was something that we made up as just a framework for us to start 
deeming what is and what isn't. But like, who's to say that we're the ones that are allowed to deem what is and isn't, you know, it's like, that seems kind of skewed (laughs) or biased. I mean, I don't know, I guess that's a whole other conversation. But it's yeah, for sure. It's like they had just this open mind. And they were like, really just energetically receptive to one another. And, you know, humans were, you know, all about community, they were, the sum was greater than the parts. It's so cool. There's so many gaps, but that's what makes it so mystical. And so just awesome. And you talked about like sound technologies and harmonics that the ancient Egyptians had. And then, you know, not even just that you think about other technologies that maybe these ancient folks had, like I've, I've heard ideas that some of these ancient monuments are aligned with eclipses because there's these changes in gravitational pull and they were able to kind of almost use that the eclipse as some sort of a generator or something. I don't know, just wild ideas. And we don't know shit about gravity today. I mean, we just figured out that it, that it's a wave and not a particle, but yeah, like we don't know how to control it or, or, or manipulate it or anything. Well, I mean, our, in this day and age, there's still just such a, there's such a, a, a disruption surrounding like what you just said and how a study like astrology is still viewed by mainstream science as, you know, a fringe science, as kind of a science that's not really science. And maybe it doesn't follow the same, you know, mechanics as biochemistry, but it sure as hell is, it involves planets and cosmic forces that like if we're sitting here acknowledging that yes it is the moon is what is creating the tides you know the moon does this that and the other which we know a lot so like that's the moon how do you think jupiter or saturn which is i mean we're just a grain of salt on these planets how do you think their gravitational pull and overall energetic relationship is with earth? I mean, again, just because we can't feel it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, you can't see air particles, but you know that they're there. So it's like, there's so much that kind of goes back to the whole concept of just because we can't prove something does not mean that that's where the conversation ends. That's just what we know, but the conversation just begins because without, you know, there has to be stuff that we don't know in order to ever eventually know. And we're never going to eventually know everything. But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to ever know everything. I feel like the whole point is that there, we're on this like evolution to, you know, yeah. everything is just infinite and boundless. And there's so much, this is such a rabbit hole, just, you know, this conversation, yeah. aliens, everything. It's a burden, yeah, I'll tell you. Knowing everything <laughs> is quite the burden. <laughs> hey, you do know your octopi, I'll tell you that. Hey, they know me, Jeff. They know me. <laughs> <laughs> what if there's like four octopi right now having some type of octopi podcast about humans? Uh-huh, that's epic. <laughs> I wonder what my octopi would be named if it was a human. <laughs> Yeah, what, what what would they decide their names would Let's be? Let's see. <laughs> oh, that's uh, hilarious. That's so funny. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, hey guys, this was such a blast. Thank you all for joining for the uh, cephalopod squad discussion. I loved it. Thank you guys. This was a blast. Such a great time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jordan. Yeah. Have a great evening. You too. See you guys. Bye guys. See you guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. That was such a ridiculous and hilarious conversation, and I wouldn't have it any other way. We get into a lot of heavy topics on this podcast, which is by design. There are a lot of darker elements of society today which need to have a light shined on them because only by shining a light on the darkness can we recognize the light. But while we're doing that, why not spend some time with friends talking about how weird, crazy, cool these cephalopod creatures are? So with that in mind... You know, we got into the conversation so quickly I didn't have a chance to drop my octopus name, which would of course be Count Ocula. And he only eats chocolate-covered fish for breakfast. Of course, there's no relation to the breakfast cereal vampire. Please don't sue me, General Mills. In my octopus's garden, here are some of the items I'd have up for decoration. The helm from a sunken ship. An empty crab shell, which I use for a hat on sunny days. Cooking equipment to make my favorite dish. Octopus ink pasta. Shiny rocks. A treasure chest of pirate's gold. Shiny seashells. A pet sea turtle named Snappy. A poster of my favorite band, the beach cephalopods. A lava lamp. Shiny jellyfish. And a pair of custom Lululemons with eight legs for when I need to hit the yoga studio. And now here's Count Ocula signing off for his octopus podcast, which is called Octangled. Yeah.